And then to learn skills, do you need to be with other people? Sometimes it depends on the skill maybe, but that may be a way to enter into it is to think about what is, what is it we want the learning to achieve and then being intentional about how best to go about that. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today it's my delight to be speaking with Joanna Mo. She is the Assistant Director of Professional Learning K-12 at Kata Foundation, the Education Development Institute. She's originally from Aotearoa, New Zealand. And Joanna currently leads a team of pre-K grade to year 12 learning designers at the EDI there in Qatar in the Middle East. She has had a really interesting career working across a variety of educational contexts, including in Hong Kong and in New Zealand, often leading in-school projects and professional learning across a range of different learning and teaching areas. Her main areas of interest in education and research include the complexities around transcultural professional learning advocating for multilingual education, and researching the application of effective approaches to learning and teaching through using continuous improvement models. She holds a Master's of Arts in Education, and she joins us from Qatar in the Middle East today. Thank you so much for being with us, Joanna. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's going to be a great chat. A lot of these, you know, your interests mirror my own. Take us into something you've learnt recently. Mm-hmm. Um, Something that I was discussing with some educators yesterday was the idea of um, bouncing forward instead of bouncing back. And Mm. I thought that was a really interesting idea. We were talking about resilience and how people talk about bouncing back. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, there was all this talk about education is going to shift. There's going to be all this disruption. It's going to be really exciting and different and new. And what seems to be happening is we're bouncing back rather than bouncing forward into something that's quite special and different and new. Um, And that was something I was reflecting on yesterday with these educators. And it was, yeah, that's that's the thing that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment is what has really changed? Um, How has the disruption really changed education now that we're back face-to-face, or at least we are in Qatar? Mm. Um, And what does that mean moving forward? in terms of our pedagogies and, you know, people are talking about personalising learning, but really what does that mean? Uh, Does it just mean using technology and working remotely or does it mean something more than that? Mm. So I guess they're the areas that I'm exploring just in the last 24 hours, I guess, thinking about those things. I love this piece on resilience because I think it's, I mean, you'd have to be some kind of human being to not have been impacted in terms of your levels of, anxiety or fatigue, just the levels of uncertainty in our world, you know, it's a great win to another lockdown or here's a new, you know, as this goes, as we record this, there's a new variant that's coming and, you know, so it just seems like it's never going to end. And, you know, that's, that idea of being resilient and kind of persevering and returning back to your original form is one thing, but I am really interested in your views on how, how do we bounce forward? How do we kind of actually through going through this collective experience, we don't return to our old form. We don't just persevere back into that space. We change, we reimagine, we remake. What, what have you, because, you know, you, you work across a, a range of schools there in, in Qatar and beyond. What's, how do we do it? 
Yeah, it's a, it's, well, it's the key question, you know, everyone's asking, I guess, right? I'm not sure I have the answers to that. Um, I think there's a greater awareness of looking at where students are at in our classrooms and trying to figure out, like, you know, especially if I'm a grade four teacher and I'm used to, for example, students coming in around this range and leaving yeah. me at this, but realizing that there's been um, a loss of learning of some sort, whether that is academic or social or, um, and trying to work out where students are at for each individual student. So that idea of personalizing the learning, mm. thinking about what the student needs. Um, I think that's sort of a starting place, but it does, I think the overwhelmingness of everything and, and that sort of uncertainty means that people start something and then have to readjust constantly. So we're not necessarily gaining traction. So I guess the question for me is how do you gain the, the traction to keep bouncing forward somewhere, wherever mm. that forward might be? Um, and maybe there's no agreed upon um, exit point. There's no kind of agreed upon where we're bouncing forward to because people still aren't quite there yet in understanding what that might be. Because, you know, we might have another lockdown. We might um, have to go back to blended models. You know, so it's sort yeah. of this constant experimentation, which is interesting, but it also means that there's the, the kind of focus and the direction is, is constantly changing, um, which I think makes it really challenging. And that, that was where these conversations were coming from yesterday is how do we build resilience in ourselves as educators, but also in our students, because they're on the receiving end of whatever changes and decisions are made. You know, mm. we're telling them that schools aren't safe spaces, so they have to wear masks, they have to socially distance. But then we're also saying, but you also should be getting along with each other and collaborating. And, you know, so what does that mean um, for those students? So yeah. um, I'm not sure that anyone really has that answer right now, um, other than to just keep working on experimenting and you know that idea about continuously improving and like looking at what's happening now and how might we make that better how could we improve that what are the things we can put in place to support students more to support our educators to support our leaders I mean as you say everyone is impacted by it so um yeah I, I I'm really excited by the space that it opens up yeah. but I also think it's a challenging space because the space is not defined there's no definition of that space yeah, this I, I really, I think you put that really well. The the challenge, of course, no one can be certain about anything really. Maybe ever anymore, forever, but certainly right now. So the idea we we must seek clarity instead of certainty mm -hmm. because we can still be clear in our need to adapt, into shift, into let go, and allow for the emergence of new practices, of new technologies, new ways of doing, being, thinking, learning, feeling. Uh, I wonder, because you've worked across all these different contexts, you know, I think what's really interesting that you, you might want to share is this kind of big idea that you're exploring through a bit of your research, you know, because it's, it's one thing just to consider a school in a, you know, in a suburban setting in Australia or the US or somewhere, it might be very multi, um, multicultural, but there's this idea also around kind of the transcultural professional learning, you know, you work alongside um, you know, fluent Arabic speakers, for example, and having to kind of negotiate and collaborate in that space. Take, take us into that world a bit. What have been some of the really big ideas you've been exploring through your role there? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really privileged to be working in um, environments that we consider international, 
but what we mean by that is different to what I would mean if I was in New Zealand. So multicultural is different to being international, I guess. So we have a situation both in Hong Kong and in Qatar. I've worked in situations where I've often been the only English native English speaker. Um, And so a lot of the environment I'm working in is in another language. And so one of the things that I became really interested in was this idea of as a leader of learning, how can I work with my team when many of my team members weren't operating in English? Um, And so, and I, as a dinosaur monolingual speaker, um, you know, how could I work with them? How can I really get into the deep work with them, especially within education and thinking about um, that whole continuous improvement and, and, you know, really having those hard conversations about education. So, I think one of the spaces that is interesting, um, especially in this new world, if you like, is how we can start shifting and changing some of the the things that have been happening historically. So, um, you know, there's this idea that um, things like inquiry-based learning or student-centered learning is the way, the only way to go. Mm. And that's sometimes in juxtaposition or tension with some of the more traditional cultures that I've been working within where schooling looks a very different way. And so one of the things that I was really interested in is how do we start fusing these ideas together and creating mm. something that's different, something that's new, something that that might work more effectively for our students and and be something that they can build from. Um, So I guess one of the things that, one of the the moment that really um, got me thinking about this, I was talking to one of my colleagues and he's someone who doesn't necessarily operate in English and he really wanted to talk to me about a problem of practice that he saw within our organisation. And he came to me with his phone and he had a translator app on his phone and we sat and had this half-hour conversation with quite a lot of laughter, you know, as translations came out. He was like, no, that's not what I mean. And I I would say something, go, no, that's not what I mean. Um, But it was was a really interesting and quite profound experience because Mm. it made me realise that I had worked with this person for three years and never really had a conversation like that with him, like to be able to say, Here's a problem of practice. What might we do about it? And that sort of started me thinking down this journey of, so how could we, um, you know, and the idea of Hargraves and O'Connor, that idea about collaborative professionalism, how do we we labour together? How do we do the work together and the mutual dialogue together when we actually don't share the same language? And and that's sort of been something I've been working on. Um, and our organisation, so EDI, is quite committed to being bilingual just because of the context that we're in. Yeah. Um, we're really committed to equity of access for professional learning, so making sure that we have offerings that are in English and in Arabic um, so that everyone has access to professional learning. And so this sort of is a continuation of that theme is, you know, how do I, even within my own team, ensure that everyone's voice is heard and that everyone has a space to voice what they want to say and that everyone's knowledge is valued. So I guess that's the big area I've been working in. That's fantastic, Joanna. I was just thinking, think about the, the kind of, you know, often we think about these contexts as, Oh, it's, a ch- it's a challenge, and it is practically a challenge because you need to do more. Or you need to translate, and you might need to slow down and think, you know, think a bit more deeply. But goodness me, it's also an opportunity. And I wonder yeah. to think about, you know, when we when you realize, I mean, the example that you spoke to, I think, really is quite striking. 
it's actually having a you know going into kind of the deep conversation asking the deeper questions about a problem of practice and kind of going down to the piece around what makes us human so i'm i'm mm-hmm. i'm really interested if if you were to share you know you've got a, a kind of tell us a bit more about the teachers that you work with across because i'm sure there's a whole range of you know people that are coming from different parts of the world to teach for a number of years or for a short period of time and and others that have been there for some some decades what do you think are the universals around approaches to teaching and learning that kind of transcend context? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I think one of the things is that no matter where you're from, you only want the best for your students. I think that's, you know, fundamentally, that's why we teach. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we can leverage a lot. So even if someone comes from a context that's quite different to where they are right now, um, there's an opportunity for them to be a learner as well as an educator. And so I think one of the things that that, um, I heard recently was the idea of cultural literacy. So that idea about learning the context you're in. Mm. So you could be like the best teacher in New Zealand, for example, I could, you know, be teacher of the year. But then when I come into a new context, I have to learn the cultural literacy of that environment and try and be the most effective educator that I can be for my students in that context. And so I think it does um, it does allow for that. Whether people are open to that is a different question. Um, but I think I think that it does mean that because we all have a common purpose of trying to be the most effective for our students that we can be um, to help them grow in, you know, hopefully in holistic ways, then I think that's kind of the fundamental. Mm. Um, And I also think that, that although I can talk about in terms of my team, we deliberately recruited globally. That was, a, that was an intentional decision because we wanted diversity. We wanted um, diverse educational thinking because we recognised that in different countries and in different places, different things were valued. And, you know, the theory was that if we did that, we would get the most effective practice globally. Um, and it's true that we have had some innovative ideas and we're lucky enough to work within Qatar Foundation, which values innovation yeah. and it values... Um, disruption and in fact it's actually in our competencies for our appraisal system that we have to demonstrate how we've been innovative and disruptive and so so that's a really um, interesting place to be working Um, but I do think that that there is if we start with the place that everyone just wants the best for their students and then it's okay so how do we do that and how do we how do we bring all of that diverse thinking together Um, to actually create something really interesting. And so within my team, one, you know, um, I tried to use my sphere of influence, I guess. Where's my sphere of influence? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we did coming back from COVID and being remote was we realized that we needed to kind of reset all of our learning principles. What were the things we believed in? What were the things we wanted to be promoting? Because we do have, um, within our context, we have 13 different schools within this small microcosm, we have a huge range of different schools. So we wanted to sort of recenter ourselves, I guess. And so we created this intentionally disruptive design of professional learning for the team where 
um, where we actually got people to choose the language they wanted to learn in. So that was the first thing. So cool. make that choice. You, you use agency to decide which language you want to learn in. And then we asked them to dig deep into one of the principles that we had settled on and then to teach others in the team about that. And they had to do it in the language of their choice. And so they spoke to other people in that language. And then once that had happened, then we joined the two teams. So if a team was looking at well-being in Arabic and another team in English, they got together and then mm. they presented it bilingually. Oh, and it was it was quite disruptive because people, you know, we have this idea that to be inclusive means that we need everyone in the room. We need to make sure that all the voices are there. And there is a lot of um, value in that in, in lots of situations. But when when we're talking about learning, and maybe this is the same for students, you know, is that when we're talking about learning, um, if we're trying to learn in a language that isn't our home language, then how deep do we go and how, how much, you know, it, it's a lot harder to do that. So we, we sort of did this and we were, at the beginning, um, there was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of, you know, why? Why are we doing this in single languages and mm. this is not inclusive? And, and there was a lot of resistance to that. And then at the end, we sort of asked people, so, you know, how was that experience for you? What, what did you learn? And on the surface, people really valued that they could go deep that they could um, collaborate in a language that they felt comfortable in and learn together um, and then come together as multilingually and then kind of go, okay, so what do we think about well-being? What do we think about, you know, a reflection? How are we actually going to be presenting this? But then the other people sort of said, but still the learning is in silos, you know, because you're still learning in your own, in your own language. And so then the question really that's come out of that for us is when is it worth learning bilingually and when is it worth learning in your own language, in your home language? So what are the situations that yeah. benefit from us working bilingually or multilingually and when are the situations where we're benefiting being in our own language? And so I guess that's kind of where we got, we've got to in terms of our thinking is being intentional about when do we need the voices, all the voices at the table, and when do we need to go deep and then bring bring that to the table. Mm. So I guess, yeah, that's kind of, that's that's been an interesting journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Joanna. I'm just, in listening to you talk about it, I also draw the parallel by this kind of, you know, it's how the intention, like the learning intention, right, or the learning aspiration can really drive everything else and so often we kind of forget it sometimes we have the technology driving the learning intention as opposed to the other way around you know um, so much evidence about that you know like highly intentional rigorous but not rigid learning you know the flexible kind of pieces so I wonder as well you know the parallel between when do we need to be in person in a classroom or when you know working in a group and when you know, what intention can we actually be remote or mm -hmm. be flipped and, you know, just mm -hmm. downloading content, you know, knowledge, you know. It's an interesting okay. question because I really wonder, one thing I think we haven't nailed yet is how, like, which parts of the learning experience matter most when we're together. And I think this is the same for any event, any learning event, any professional learning conference. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like what, mm -hmm. what's the distinction between kind of investing more time and energy in finances often in going somewhere or bringing people together 
in human uh-huh. form as opposed to the Zoom uh-huh. form that we're in at the moment. Have you have you had any thoughts on that as a team or discussions as a team on that? You know, when when virtual and when analog? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a really good question right now. Um, it's been really interesting to see the the shifts for educators. So in the old days, pre-COVID, it was everyone days. wanted to go yeah. conferences. Yeah, the old days. Everyone wanted to be in conferences. Everyone wanted to be face-to-face. You know, the social constructivist way of doing things was, you know, that's what ruled. It was you had to be in conversations with people face-to-face. Mm. Um, and yet we know that conferences as a professional learning tool are quite limited in their impact. So we actually know that. Um, so it's sort of, it's interesting that then we shifted to remote and, al- mm. and although we're not face-to-face, we can still have conversations, we can still have discussions, facilitators can still design in a way that people have visible thinking happening, you know, on your screen. Yeah. So there's been a lot of advantages to that. Um, and since we've come back face-to-face, it's been very interesting. So we have some people who really want to come face-to-face who just want to, who are, who have got screen fatigue, not interested in being on a screen at all, um, especially when they're learning. Mm-hmm. And then we have those that actually like the convenience of being able to learn in whatever space they want to be in. So that's been a really, you know, it's sort of, it's still evolving. I don't think we've hit any kind of hard and fast, this is how we're going to do it. But I think it depends mm-hmm. on if we think about what we're trying to achieve when we're learning. So you're thinking about the knowledge level, the skill level, the behaviors, the attitudes, the aspirations. There's probably a lot of benefit in terms of being face-to-face if we're looking at the social aspect, the social element. But in terms of if we're looking at knowledge or skills, do we really need to be face-to-face for that? Um, there might be in some circumstances where that that's really the key, but maybe it's about breaking it apart that way, teasing mm. it out and, and making decisions from that. So we, do we need to be face-to-face or in-person, say, to be building knowledge? There's, there's definitely benefit in, you know, constructing meaning together, but can you do that in a remote setting? And then to learn skills, do you need to be with other people? Sometimes it depends on the skill maybe. So I think there's still a lot of work and thinking that we can do around that. Um, but that may be a way to enter into it is to think about what is what is it we want the learning to achieve and then being intentional about how best go about that. Yeah, I love that, Joanna. Yeah, it's such a great question. And I, th- well, I mean, the experiment's underway, isn't it really? We'll see where we mm. land, you know, right. if we ever get into the post world <laughs> as opposed to the current, like during the pandemic. Um, I'd love to ask you a question about the future of learning. A lot of the guests mm-hmm. on, on this podcast, you know, very diverse, lots of different vantage points, policymakers, educators, innovators, et cetera. Um, where do you think we're going? If we're having this conversation in 2035, uh, mm. you know, what do we think? What do you, what do you kind of hope or, or like predict might be the case for schools? I mean, how will schools look different? How will learning be different in communities? What, what are the, some of the things, the trends that you can see from, from where you are? Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, of course, it's one we're all grappling with, which is kind of the exciting part about being in education at it's the moment. Yeah. Um, my aspiration is that it looks quite different. I'd like to see it as far more flexible, far more, um, you know, that, that students, whether they're students or adults, Mm. students, um, whether they 
they come from any kind of situation are able to learn across languages, across countries, across, you know, so the whole idea of all the borders disappearing. Mm. Um, I really, that's my aspiration and that's what I'd like to see. Whether that's possible um, and whether that's where it will end up in, you know, even if you give us give ourselves 10 years, I'm not sure that that's the case because we still have firmly entrenched systems like universities where still the, you know, the purpose of education in lots of contexts is to get people to university. Mm. And so if that remains the goal, then particular kinds of learning and teaching and pedagogies will continue. But if we start broadening that goal, if we start thinking about what are some of the other alternatives, then maybe that's where our energy can be put Mm. in the next 10 years so that we actually start thinking about different models then. Because at the moment, if we continue to have that as the outcome, um, and, you know, even I'm an educator, I'd like to think that isn't the the only outcome, but that's what we kind of, that that whole bounce back thing, it's about, you know, getting people, getting the students through the system, getting them through the exams, they've lost learning, there's all this, you know, worry about that. Yes, yeah. Are we thinking also about their social skills? Are we thinking about, you know, what what skills did they learn over COVID? They all became much more proficient on online tools. Like they, they I would say that they significantly increased their mm. skill sets around that. So how can we leverage that? What does that mean bouncing forward? You know, what does that mean? How, how might we leverage that and make that into something that's really valuable? Because it also depends on what you value. If you value university as an outcome, then the system isn't necessarily going to change because it's set up for that. It's designed for that. So how might we design things in a different way that has a different outcome um, and therefore allows for that flexibility of, you know, a range of different things? So aspiration, I have lots of aspirations, Luca. I I have (laughs) lots of dreams about what it might look like. Um, The reality of working within systems and trying to get systems to shift is, you know, that's that's the long work. That's the work that will take a lot of time. But it also means a lot of, um, I don't know, destructuring, unstructuring. I don't know, like pulling apart the structures that currently sit and, and sort of looking at it again and going, hmm, so how might we design this differently for a different outcome? And then maybe we'll get some shifts from there. Yeah, fantastic. I, I love this idea of breaking apart, you know, like almost de-engineering, you know, how people take yeah. apart a, a motor and they take out every single component and kind of put it on a flat sheet and you look at it and you go, wow, that's really complex. I mean, we can do that yeah. with social systems as well, I think is the interesting thing. What are all the things that sometimes are just so unconscious? And we had mm-hmm. uh, Santiago Rincon Gallardo, who's a fantastic educator and thinker, from the US um, with Mexican heritage. And he, he was talking about this idea of the moving from the grammar of schooling to the language of learning and how that mm. is, that's this shift that we're seeing. Because the grammar is kind of, in some ways, it's hidden and it's, yeah, success is a traditional pathway that's academic. Whereas this new mm. value, as you talk about, you know, the new value set for maybe the new schools is this idea of collective flourishing or collective well being. And if your path means going through an academic pathway at a university, the sandstone, fantastic. But that Mm -hmm. shouldn't be the path for every human being across this Mm -hmm. diverse array that we have in our world, perhaps. Right. Right. Because even when you get to university, there's certain ways, certain knowledges and ways of knowing that are valued more than others. So if I think about students in my context, what does that mean for them as Qatari students? 
Mm. If there's this academic world that is set up by people from different places um, with different values, different belief systems, and then, you know, that whole sort of academic world still looks like that. What does that mean for those students? So that opening up and that, you know, I'm really interested in the idea of epistemic justice and Mm -hmm. how, how do we make sure that people's knowledge is valued beyond just the sort of dominant Western academic ways of knowing? How else might we value other things that and and have them of equal value so that it's not you know this or this it's sort of this range that you can have I think that's a really interesting idea that we could start playing with much more I love that I've I'm really taken by the the framing which is rather than either or it must be both and so I'm Mm -hmm. moving from this scarcity to abundance worldview the idea of elevating all the different dimensions of what make us human and realizing mm-hmm. that that's what we should celebrate is the full spectrum <laughs> rather than mm-hmm. compartmentalizing and sometimes trying to measure just such narrow contributions, which are really, yeah. we should applaud, but you know, they're narrow in the sense that mm-hmm. there's a full spectrum and, and so much of it is not yet covered, I think. Um, Joanna, this is yeah. fantastic. I, I'd, love, I'd love for you to, I don't know how you're going to do this, but if you can, if, what's your take home message from our conversation today? Because we've kind of touched on equity on mm. epistemic uh, justice, right, which is fantastic, justice mm. for knowledge systems that might be different. Um, we talked about the difference between in-person. What's the take-home message you want to leave for our, our community today? Oh, that's a big ask, Luca. Um, <laughs> I, guess, I guess if we think aspirationally about education and we think about if we, if we let go of all of our beliefs and ideas around education and we think about how might we create these fusions of all the things that we just talked about so how might we create fusions of culture and language and different ways of knowing the world different pieces of humanity like all those how might we create a, a renewed fusion I guess so that we we can bring in elements and people don't have to then do everything but they can as you say have these kind of learning pathways and all those learning pathways are equally valued so that it's not, you know, if you choose this, like, it's like the old tech academic, you know, that kind of either mm. or, not that, but have something that's far more fluid and far more open and and accommodating, I guess, for the range of people that we have. I mean, students aren't all the same. Um, and so I think, yeah, if, if we could work towards that, if we could work towards this kind of fluid, agile fusion of mm. what does it mean to learn, I really like the idea of changing the language to learning, um, then then I'm all in to try and help move that forward. That's something that I'd be really keen to be working on. Um, and I guess, yeah, the takeaways, I like the idea of that bouncing forward. What are we bouncing forward into? And could it be this kind of, agile way of thinking about learning mm. that values different perspectives, different viewpoints, you know, not just on the surface, which is what we often, we say, yes, yes, we value, but really do we, yeah. you know, we might say it, but what do our systems value? What do our outcomes value? Um, then I guess that would be my, if we could achieve that in my lifetime, it'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I, you're working. I'm not ambitious at all. <laughs> not ambitious at all. <laughs> well, it, we, everything starts with ambition. Um, Joanna, thanks for sharing some of that ambition with us today for the Learning Future podcast. It's been a delight. You're welcome. Thank you. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.